Mormon Matters Podcast is a production of the Open Stories Foundation and is seeking to build financial support separate from Mormon Stories Podcast. All donations to Mormon Matters are fully tax-deductible and go directly towards keeping the podcast alive and towards building a community of support for Mormons like you. To support the podcast or to join the community, please become a monthly subscriber today at mormonmatters.org. Welcome, everyone, to another edition of the Mormon Matters Podcast. This is your host, Dan Weatherspoon. I'm really grateful for the panel that has agreed to come on tonight. We are going to take on a very important discussion. We're going to take on one that I think a lot of you will say, darn, I wish I had this a couple of weeks ago. As you've begun to have conversations fresh within Mormon community, Mormon family, friends, perhaps in your ward, about homosexuality, uh, you know, triggered by the church's uh, change in policy back on November 6th. So that's caused lots of good discussions. And this episode tonight, my strong, strong hope is, and I've just got the ideal people for this, is to present the best information, the research-based information that we have on homosexuality, we're going to start with the biological origins. What is the evidence for different changes in bodies and brains of those who are homosexual versus those who are heterosexual? And we're going to then move on to the, I don't know, so many people have anecdotes about so-and-so. They said that, you know, they were abused as a child and that's probably why they were gay, or they were able to cure themselves because of this or that or something. And we want to really look hard at the research-based evidence for homosexuality, change, uh, origins, and things like that at that social, environmental level. So you have the nature and the nurture, and we're, we're going to definitely get to as much of it as we can. So I'm really grateful to have, uh, as one of our guests is a real regular here, uh, Natasha Helfer-Parker. Welcome back to Mormon Matters. Tell us about out, uh, your work as a as a therapist, but also your uh, you know you've got the lots of things going in the podcast world, the online world, and, and various things. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I'm a marriage and family therapist, and then I went on and received more training and became a certified sex therapist. And I've been working with majority of L- majority LDS clients in my practice for almost twenty years now, and. Definitely have worked around a lot of LGBT issues and excited to be here. I run a blog called The Mormon Therapist. I host a a podcast called Mormon Mental Health. And about a year and a half ago, I helped found the Mormon Mental Health Association with several colleagues. And so, yeah, so I'm, I'm really trying to be involved in the Mormon mental health community. We're so grateful for all you're doing and all those friends. So, and uh, I know you're a favorite of Mormon Matters listeners. So, thanks. We're excited to have you join in. Wow, thanks, Bill Bradshaw, William Bradshaw. You and I have been friends for 15 years or so, and I think you're going to be well known to those who've maybe 
uh, encountered these questions before. About five years ago, you did, uh, I mean, I know you regularly did presentations when you were a microbiology professor at BYU about the biological origins of homosexuality, and you allowed Mormon stories to record it one night and to also take pictures of the various slides. And so uh, I think for five years now, you've been kind of the go-to person about the biological origins, and we're, we're looking and we're grateful for the fresh looks we'll have, and I know some, some things you said to me have changed in the last five years, so we're excited about that. But would you go ahead and just give us a, a broad background about your career and uh, you know what led you to an interest in these questions and things? Well, I've uh, formally retired uh, from the BYU faculty uh, beginning in 2008. I'd uh, been there for 38 years with a three-year leave of absence to preside over the mission of the church in Hong Kong and South Vietnam. I have uh, a strong interest in tonight's topic, uh, primarily because uh, God has blessed my wife and I with extraordinary children, one of whom is a gay man, and that became the impetus for me to become less ignorant and uh, try to become informed and knowledgeable about uh, the subject tonight. And this has been a 20-year quest for you, right, to, to get to the bottom of this. Is that about how long your son had came out to you and your wife? Roughly that long. So I've tried to uh, keep abreast of the literature, the, the uh, relevant literature on the subject. And then several years ago, I enlisted John DeLynn, a, a former student of mine, who was then a graduate student uh, at Utah State, to conduct uh, a study of gay and lesbian LGBTQ members of the church and that work uh, has now reached a point where we have published several papers and have uh, been able to contribute at that level to this topic. Yes, and it, was, it wasn't one of the things that was different about yours, uh, this latest research, is it's 100% Mormon and Mormon re respondents? Yes, 1,612 in our survey sample. Wonderful. And then you were doing these lectures at BYU, not really officially sponsored by BYU, but certainly under the knowledge of them. How many years did you do that? And are you still doing that at all? Maybe I'm, I don't know that you maybe are continuing that. What I've been doing most recently uh, up until uh, a few months ago or so has been to be a guest lecturer in courses in bioethics and introductory uh, biology for non-majors at the university. Okay, great. Well, thanks, Bill. And we're going to start with you after we finish introducing or having our, our next wonderful guest introduce himself. Daniel Parkinson, would you share with us uh, your background, uh, both LDS, uh, personal, uh, what you do for a living, all that good stuff. Welcome to Mormon Matters. I am from Utah. I'm a Mormon, um, the typical, you know, multi-generation Mormon, and from a very zealous family, extremely zealous. I came out as gay when I was 24 years old after serving a mission, and I had, just prior to that, stopped believing in the church, so I didn't have a terribly dramatic departure, and I was involved in the religion for decades after that. I went on to medical school and became a psychiatrist. I'm a practicing psychiatrist. 
and I practice in Minnesota. I also met the love of my life and got married, and so I am in a same-sex relationship, actually marriage, which makes me an official apostate um, as of November 6th. And I have been involved in the activism in the LGBT LDS community for the past few years. I was recruited by John DeLynn to do the Game Warm Stories podcast. So I was running the Game Warm Stories podcast for a while while I was had the energy to do that. And I subsequently ran the blog, nomorestrangers.org blog, that a lot of you might have read different articles from. And that kind of got me going. And then my biggest project so far has been the I'llWalkWithYou.org. I'm sorry, it's called LDSWalkWithYou.org, which is I'll Walk With You, LDS um, parents and friends of LGBT Mormons. Um, that particular project has been very, very gratifying. It was a video project of interviews with LDS, active LDS parents of LGBT people. And the idea of that was to give role models to all LDS parents about how they might better respond to the issue and have a more happy outcome and learn from the experience of these other marvelous parents. And it's been really fantastic for me to work with active LDS Mormons and especially these parents who are so devoted to loving their children. And it gave me sort of a new and wonderful connection to Mormonism after being gone for so long. I came back in this context, and now my very favorite people on earth are active LDS Mormons, at least a lot of them. There's plenty of ex-Mormons I love and admire, too, in the same realm who are helping with the same work, too. So both ex-Mormons, but these active Mormons are where I particularly focused my efforts, and so that's where I've gotten to know the most people and the most, you know, I have to say, just amazing, wonderful, active LDS Mormons who have really caused a huge amount of progress to be made on this issue in the church. And even though I am an official apostate, it turns out that I've become sort of a missionary for Mormonism, at least for people to stay active, because I have strongly feel that the best thing for LDS, LGBT Mormons of all ages is to have allies within their midst. So I've been a constant voice promoting people who are in the on the fence to please try to stay in the church. So if I am an apostate, I'm not one who's trying to get people out of the church in a global way, although there are people who do need to get out. But um, certainly I think I'm really focusing my efforts on trying to help people figure out a way to stay. Thank you for all your work, Danny. You've been a great voice in these, on these issues and a respected one. We're, we're grateful to have you. It is great to have all of you, and I, I can't wait to, to learn from you and to ask questions of you, and hopefully I'll serve as a surrogate for those out there who, I, you know, I'm aware of some of this material that we're going to be covering and things, but I'm going to try to act as the voice of somebody who is maybe hearing this for the first time in, in the way that I, I talk with you. But, um, Bill, I'm really excited to have you do a version of your BYU lectures, a version of what you do, where you can at least help us understand, you know, what we do know about differences between homosexual men and women and heterosexual men and women in terms of how the traits that we have, brains, and I know hearing, I know finger length and various things like that. What do we know and what do you find as the most interesting and solid evidence for 
this is at least a, a good, strong piece of this is biologically based. Um, would you just start, and then I'll just keep uh, keep peppering you. All right. Well, let's begin with this. There is an academic language to distinguish two different explanations for sexual orientation. The first is essentialism. So this is the belief that sexual orientation is an inherent, verifiable reality, uh, an innate, uh, inherent, biologically driven trait. And in my opinion, this is the model that finds support in empirical research. Uh, the second model uh, is labeled constructionism. This is the view, then, that sexual orientation is a learned trait, which is a response to culture and social interactions. Uh, for example, uh, this posits that sexual orientation is uh, due to inadequate or defective parenting, to sexual molestation or to early sexual experience or something described as uh, impaired gender development. So in my view, this is a model which is based on uh, hypothetical reasoning for which there is no compelling positive evidence and for which there is some strong negative uh, scientific findings. What I'll do now is to try to set out some examples that I believe are compelling, which cause us to understand that homosexuality is a biologically driven trait. There is strong evidence for anatomical and physiological characteristics in which homosexual and heterosexual people differ. Now, the documentation from this has often come from studies of so-called sexually dimorphic traits. So these are characteristics in which straight men and women differ. And the question is, uh, on those kinds of traits, how do gay men and lesbian women position themselves? And I'm going to provide some examples of these kinds of studies. But let me begin with the conclusion that all of them have reached, and that is that gay men and lesbian women are atypical compared to, the, to their straight counterparts. All right, so let's begin with a category of research examples that demonstrate that there's a functional difference in the brain between straight and gay people. First example uh, is that there are demonstrable cognitive differences. Uh, let me describe an experiment. So you have a table with two dozen objects placed at various locations. The research subject is allowed a few seconds to look at that array of objects, and then they're covered, and the subject is asked to recall what the objects were and where they were placed. In such a test, women always reproducibly outperform men. On the other hand, there are tests that measure spatial reasoning. So if one has a, an object and you can visually turn it in three dimensions in various positions, the subject is asked to identify among a set 
which objects are identical, even though they are positioned differently. In, in that kind of spatial test, men reproducibly outperform women. So how do gay men perform in tests like this? They perform like straight women. Lesbians perform like straight men. Another example of uh, brain function is hearing. So it turns out that you can measure the fact that, perhaps not intuitively, our ears actually make some sounds. Uh, there's a special name for this that we not, need not cite. It turns all, out also that one can measure during hearing effects in the brain during the act, the auditory act of listening to sounds. In such tests, gay and lesbian people are atypical. There's another uh, interesting example. It's called pre-pulse inhibition. So when we hear a, a, an out, a loud noise unexpectedly, we tend to be startled. And you can measure this experimentally by eye blink. It turns out, however, that if one hears, uh, if before such a sound is presented to a person, if they hear a weaker sound in advance of the test sound, the, the test sound response is reduced. It's inhibited. And, th this is a, and there is a difference between men and women in this respect. Women have a lower level of inhibition in this test circumstance. So this has been tested with gay and lesbian people. There's no difference between gay and straight men, but lesbian women are masculinized in this kind of a test. All right, brain activity is also different, different uh, when test subjects are exposed to certain kinds of odors. There is a, uh, a particular chemical compound derived from testosterone, the so-called male steroid hormone, that uh, has an odor. It may not be conscious, one may not be consciously aware of this, but one's brain does respond to it. And this can be measured with a so-called PET scan. In addition, there is a compound that's derived from estrogen, the female steroid hormone. And uh, the brain response to this can also be measured through the PET, PET scan instrumentation. So uh, in this kind of a test, uh, the brain lights up. You can make a visual map of how the brain activity, uh, where the brain activity is taking place when people are, are exposed to these chemical compounds. Well, same conclusion as with the other tests. Gay men respond to the testosterone-derived compound, like straight women, and the converse is true for lesbians. All right, those are examples of brain function that demonstrate physiological differences between gay and straight people. The next example I'd like to cite is called the older brother effect. So tests have been done to look at 
family organization with respect to those people who are LGBT. And in a very, very large number of studies, something like 14 or 15 published papers, it can be demonstrated that there is a certain cohort of gay men who, whose homosexuality can be attributed to their position among siblings in the family. That is to say that they uh, are younger siblings of older gay brothers. They have more older brothers. This does not apply to lesbians and it does not apply to gay men with respect to their sisters. This is very well established and corroborated by studies from different lab laboratories in a number of different countries. And it's not just it's not just the odds of the more male children you have the more gay men are going to result. It's it has nothing to do with that. No, there are controls for that, and the, the most important one is that uh, you can demonstrate th that this is true for biological brothers raised apart, but not for non-biological brothers raised together. Right. And are you going to go into the hypothesis for that? I know that was a pretty interesting part of the presentation I've heard before. The, the hypothesis is reasonable and plausible, but has no uh, empirical validation. And the explanation is that when a mother is pregnant with a male child, she's actually carrying a foreign object with respect to her immune system. So that male child has a Y chromosome that she does not possess in her genetic repertoire. And that there is likely to be then an immune response. That mom is building up a certain level of antibodies that are anti-boy, if you anti-male. With subsequent subsequent male pregnancies, the level of that antibody may increase, such that in a in a later pregnancy, perhaps when the uh, when there is a third male or fourth male child the level of those antibodies may impact in some way the embryonic development of that subsequent male child. That makes a lot of sense biologically, but I don't know of any empirical evidence for it. Uh, if you think about it a while, uh, a way, there's not a very good way to perform easily an experiment to validate that. Especially, it happens within the first few weeks, right, of after conception. Isn't that correct? So it would be so hard to, to get in there at that at those points where things start to diverge, right? Well, you don't know how to pick out the sample in the first place, and you don't know exactly uh, what the biological targets of the antibodies would be. Right. It's but can I comment on that particular phenomenon? Please. Um, it is... A really interesting finding, partly because it also is one of the best explanations for why that would pass the muster of natural selection for those of you who believe in evolution, which I hope is most of the audience. A lot of people are wondering how we could have a, a such a high prevalence of homosexuality in a population when it 
on the surface seems like it would be an advantageous for reproduction and survival. But in the way that um, these hunter-gatherer societies where we evolved for two million years probably evolved, it would be the most likely that a younger son with older brothers would not have that much chance of conquering the females in the community because his big brothers would already have done that and would have had a, the first chance of access. So the younger brother would have just set about to trying to murder his older brothers, which wouldn't have helped anybody. So in that context, having a non-producing male, um, that's a situation where the non-producing male would be the most helpful as and the least harmful. So that gives us a really good natural selection explanation for why male homosexuality might have evolved. Another interesting little point I want to throw in about that phenomena is that if anyone thinks there's more gay men in Mormon communities, that would be uh, one reason why that could be, because the more larger families, you're more likely to have older brothers. And as um, Dr. Bradshaw explained, the more older brothers you have, for each older brother you have, the higher chance you have of turning out gay. Um, I had two older brothers, so my chances went up, I don't remember, by 30% or something because of that. And so you, in Mormon communities, for example, where there's a lot of large families, you have a lot more males who have several older brothers. So those, at least, who are gay by that pathway, and there's probably more than one pathway to arriving at a homosexual outcome, but at least that one is a pretty strong one, and that would argue that, yes, there is possibly more gay men in Mormon communities. Anyway, that's just an aside. And Bill, before before we move on uh, for the younger brother effect, how significant is this? Like, what percentage of gay men, you know, have older brothers? And can you just at least give us a sense of this the correlation here? Yeah, I was going to ask if if it's less likely then as the firstborn son to be homosexual than so. Along with your question, Dan. Well, something like uh, fifteen to twenty percent of gay men. The statistics suggest that between 15 and 20 percent of gay men can attribute their homosexuality to this effect. The, the statistics are extremely strong here. So and how many how many so plenty of gay men are the oldest male children? Well, let me just say that this is not simple. There's a important correlation between the older brother effect and handedness. Okay. So, with respect to non-right-handedness, uh, lesbian women exhibit a much higher degree of left-handedness, non-right-handedness, than straight women. In men, handedness is related in a complicated way to the older brother effect. So, gay men who are the firstborn in their families have a much higher, exhibit a much higher level of left-handedness. But men who have older brothers are very strongly right-handed. Nobody has a, an easy mechanistic explanation for this, but the data are, are strong. But that just, that just implies that there's different pathways to that have the same conclusion, and some of them work, might work for a pathway where handedness is highly relevant, another one might work through a different pathway where the big brother effect is highly relevant, 
and some might be a combination, and there might be yet other pathways. Yes. But this is just a reason why that might be. It's not proven. Yeah, and did I pick up somewhere along the line, Bill, on that hypothesis about the antibodies that a lot of older homosexual men who are the oldest child, perhaps their mom had had a miscarriage or two, and there there were perhaps male embryos? I'm not aware that the data includes information about Okay. All right. I thought I picked that up somewhere in the line the last 10 years. I'd like to follow up on, uh, while we're at this point in the discussion, on Daniel's point about Please. objections that have been raised about the evolutionary, the issue of whether or not homosexuality uh, can be uh, believed because of some evolutionary counter-argument. Uh, the the evidence that I know that's most compelling is that in the maternal line of gay men, there is a, uh, a very high level of fecundity. That is to say, the women in the genealogical line of some gay men have many, many more children than, than the average than across the population at large. There are three different studies that validate this, two in Italy and one in in England. So like some uh, traits with a genetic basis that may have some negative impact, in this case, uh, gay people not uh, having as many offspring, uh, uh, not being less likely to marry perhaps and have offspring. There's a counterbalancing positive effect that demonstrates, in fact, you can't use natural selection and evolutionary arguments to disqualify the validity of sexual orientation. And can I add a few things to that, too? Um, I've spent a lot of time kind of thinking and writing about that, although I haven't published about it, but evolutionary psychology has kind of ignored a lot about that, but have called it the their big, um, you know, paradox, supposed paradox. But it's actually not very hard to think of why it might actually be an advantage by way of natural selection. And if you look at other social species, you'll realize that it's very common in highly socialized species to have highly selective roles. And they have species that are called eusocial, where there's only one reproducing member in the whole hives such as the beehive or in these blind mole rats and the other members of the species have different roles and even in some less eusocial but highly social animals such as wolves in a wolf pack there's only one reproducing couple in meerkats it's really really common in different species to have specialized reproducers and the other people are helping the survival of their nieces and nephews and so this is actually really common And humanity is the most social species out there, except for these high-use social species like bees, ants, and blind mole rats. And one thing about humanity that has been a huge advantage for us is the incredible diversity that can happen within one community. And so by having extremely diverse roles, we increase the survivability of that community. And so the lesbian and gay people in a lot of cultures even today have managed to fill a particular niche that ended up helping the community. And this also 
means that uh, in our evolutionary history that when we were evolving, those tribes or communities that had this different diversity had certain advantages. And I won't get into them all now, but I could. If anyone's interested, they feel free to talk to me. But they, these different roles brought a protective mechanism. And when you talk about a gene that survives because of natural selection, it's the gene. It's not the individual. And so if you take it from the perspective of the grandmother, for example, the only thing we're counting is how many surviving grandchildren she have. It doesn't matter which of her children give her these grandchildren and which of those are helping, but it's the it's math. It's the number of grandchildren she had. So there's really a lot to think about, about why natural sex selection might have allowed um, a trait like this in humans, but it doesn't take very much imagination to think of lots of reasons. And those studies that Bill pointed out are excellent because those are sort of proven studies, and that gives us some real data. But there's a lot of hypotheses that you could make that are very, very plausible as to also why it could have happened and looking at other species and looking at what we know about our um, the history of mankind. Thank you. All right. Uh, we started out by saying that uh, th there is evidence for different functions in the brain. Uh, so, the answer, so the question then that follows is, uh, what's the explanation for those functional differences? And the answer is that there is strong evidence that there are structural differences in the brain between gay and straight people. So there are three structures in the brain where there is uh, strong anatomical evidence that uh, th there are structural differences. They are in the hypothalamus, which is known, especially from animal studies, to, be, to play a role in sexual behavior. The amygdala, uh, which is really interesting because uh, among its functions uh, in uh, regulating emotion is the fact that it has a role to play in rough and tumble activity in juvenile individuals. And the corpus callosum is uh, the sort of bridge in the brain, structural bridge between the two hemispheres. All three of these organs are known to exhibit differences between gay and straight people. Do you, now, want, to, do you want to go into any details about that? Any of these? No, because there's a lot more to say, and I'm afraid okay. <laughs> of going too long. All right, but just uh, – and. This pretty consistent studies. You take these to the bank, kind of thing. Well, just one, just one, just one thing. One, one detail. So the very first uh, of these studies was published by uh, a man whose name is Simon Levay. Right. Levay was uh, in San Diego. He's British, a gay man. At the time that he published the studies, he was working in a distinguished lab in San Diego. So uh, in the journal Science. Uh, I guess it's 25 years ago, LaVey took samples from deceased individuals, some gay, some straight, and found that a certain area of the hypothalamus, it's called a nucleus, which means a, a collection of certain neurons, not the nucleus that we may think of as the compartment inside a cell where DNA is housed. A nucleus, then, is this collection of neurons that it was different in the brain of gay men. It, it, it was a publication that received a lot of attention. It also received a lot of 
uh, negative press in conservative quarters, including in the church. For example, some of the uh, men who, whose samples were taken had died of AIDS. And so the argument was made, well, this is not uh, due to their sexual orientation. It's due to the disease state uh, of being virally infected with HIV. But that possibility has been excluded by subsequent studies in other laboratories. Maybe this is, maybe this is time for me to sort of introduce a, something I've been thinking about this. And that is, so I'm taking a detour here and talking about how people respond to scientific information. Okay. A number of years ago, so this is 2006, there was an exchange in the Salt Lake Tribune about the biology of sexual orientation between Simon LeVay, whom I've just described briefly, and David Pruden, who was uh, then the executive secretary of Evergreen, uh, the organization that promoted sexual orientation change efforts, including reparative therapy. So I'm going to quote from David Pruden. However, the innate immutable theory of homosexuality has no basis in science. The simplistic biological theory has been dismissed by all of the researchers whose study have been cited to support the notion that homosexuality is so deeply compelled biology by biology that it cannot change. Now, that statement is demonstrably to be false. And in response to it, uh, uh, later in his piece, in his op-ed in the Tribune, uh, Pruden went on to discount uh, Simon LeVay and to selectively quote from LeVay, but leave out important parts of LeVay's uh, statements about the implications of his work. So I guess I just want to bring up at this point that there's a there has been a lot of misinformation, a lot of misrepresentation about the kinds of uh, research studies that uh, we're talking about tonight. Uh, and the criticisms I find incorrect and invalid on a number of levels. Well, I, I hope I didn't sort of foul out, foul up the stream of. No, thank you. Of the discussion, but maybe that was a point where we could talk, uh, where no, I could. No, that was good with Simon Levey for sure to bring that, that up. That is you. And that's why I was almost. You asked for a little detail about the brain studies, and that's what I thought might be useful. Super. Do you, do you want to? Uh, you talked about handedness a, a little bit there on the big brother effect and the younger brother effect. Do you want to talk about that and finger length and stuff like that as well? Or am, uh, I, am I putting you too far at the horse of Fred of the cart here? Uh, let's save it for just a moment or two. So it seems to me that the logic is we talked about brain function. There are demonstrable differences in brain anatomy. So, what's the explanation for these differences? And there's a lot of evidence that the differentiation of the embryonic brain is programmed by steroid hormones. So let's begin that discussion by saying the following. 
Women have two X sex chromosomes. Men have one X and one Y chromosome. There is an, a gene known to be uh, positioned on the Y chromosome throughout the animal kingdom. It has the name SRY. It turns out to be uh, a gene that programs the synthesis of a protein that regulates transcription. Transcription being uh, the name for gene, a gene being turned on. If you want to think about a light switch and you push the, the uh, switch in the up position, the light goes on. Uh, what happens when a gene is turned on is a, a transcriptional event that starts to relay the message encoded in the language of DNA so that it can be uh, used to program the production of a protein. So the SRY gene and the SRY protein determine male sex determination in a number of organs in the developing embryo. Importantly, in mammals, that gene causes the gonad, which is sort of in an indifferent state in the embryo. That is, if you look at it at an early stage, you can't tell whether it's going to turn out to be a, the testes or the ovaries. It hasn't been programmed to differentiate in either of those directions yet. But the SRY gene causes in males the indifferent gonad to be testes. And the testes then start to produce large levels of the steroid hormone testosterone. And it is known that testosterone causes the differentiation of the brain and of the secondary sex characteristics in the embryo. There's a lot of studies that I won't attempt to detail uh, with animals that validate these kinds of conclusions. So an interesting one occurs with sheep. There are 8% of rams who will not engage in normal male sexual behavior. They won't mount ewes, females. They will allow themselves to be mounted by aggressive males. And when studies are done with those rams in comparison with the sort of normal male behaving rams, uh, the same kind of brain structural differences are found uh, as I've described in humans. But the advantage of doing the, uh, the work in sheep is that you can do uh, biochemistry, you can kill the animals, which you can't do of course with humans, and you can do biochemical studies that you can't do with humans that demonstrate uh, the impact of steroid hormones on brain development. Now, the, the most easily to understand example of this come from two cases in human beings where there are anomalies in sexual development known to, be, uh, to have a genetic basis. The first of these conditions has the acronym CAH. It stands for congenital adrenal hyperplasia. All right, so our, our, our adrenal glands are those organs uh, on, the, on our backs, just 
up above our kidneys. And the adrenal glands have important functions, but among them is the production of hydrocortisone functions in our response to stress, for example. Well, hydrocortisone, like testosterone, like estrogen, uh, are, are molecular cousins, all derived from the molecule cholesterol. In people who have CAH, there is a known genetic mutation that causes the biochemistry of steroid production to be rerouted from that which would normally produce adrenaline or uh, hydrocortisone to one that produces testosterone. So these embryos, bottom line, these, embryo, these embryos are exposed to very much larger than normal levels of testosterone. Now in males, that doesn't seem to have a difference. The, uh, CAH males look and act like normal males, but CAH females do not. Their secondary sex characteristics are masculinized and with respect to sexual orientation, these females are sexual attraction toward women. The second example is a condition whose acronym is AIS, which stands for Androgen Insensitivity Syndrome. These people produce normal amounts of the hormone testosterone, but it can't be utilized. It can't work for them. The reason is that they have a mutation in a gene that programs the receptor protein through which testosterone uh, produces its effects on a target cell. So in a, the case called complete androgen insensitivity syndrome, the individuals are anatomically exactly like females, but they are genetic males. I'm going to repeat that. So this is a male genetically, a, a person with an XY chromosome, but these people are recognized as females at birth. They are raised female. If you looked at a young adult person with this condition, they would be absolutely anatomically like a woman, but they are XY genetic males, and they have a sexual orientation that is skewed toward females. So there's just no question about the role of steroid Wait, hormones. Wait, just a second. <laughs> Clarify that um, for us, Dr. Bradshaw. You're saying that these XY males who look and act like females and everyone thinks they're females also have a typical sexual orientation of females, meaning they're oriented towards males. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Okay. Thanks for the clarification. So I want to move on now to the issue of uh, genetic explanations for sexual orientation. There's no question but what in the animal world there's a wealth of evidence that genes determine sexual behavior. The most complete molecular example is in fruit flies. So there is a gene in Drosophila melanogaster called fruitless. A lot of genes in Drosophila have whim uh, whimsical names. 
sonic hedgehog, for example, and fruitless uh, is a gene which, it, when it is mutant, causes the fruit flies to be sterile. Moreover, genetic manipulation of this gene is such that if you take a genetic female fly and you restrict the expression of this gene, that female exhibits the male sexual behavior. Now, there's an elaborate kind of dance that the flies do when they're mating. You turn a genetic female into a male when you stop the, ex the normal expression of the female version of this gene. And the converse is true, so that if you turn on the male expression of fruitless in a uh, female fl fly, they exhibit male mating behavior. Uh, there are, uh, this same gene uh, is known to have similar effects in other organisms. It's clear that if you look outside of human beings in the animal kingdom, that you see strong evidence for genes that control uh, sexual behavior. Uh, you can't talk to fruit flies or ask how they feel, so it's probably not quite accurate to talk about sexual orientation in uh, other organisms. Nonetheless, the role for genes is clear. Thank you for joining us today on Mormon Matters Podcast. To discuss this podcast with others, please check us out at mormonmatters.org. To keep this podcast alive or to join our support community, please consider a tax-deductible donation today at mormonmatters.org. Music for this podcast was brought to you by Brittany and Clayton Pixton. The Mormon Matters logo was generously provided by StudioCase.com. Thank you for listening.